This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Delilah. And Delilah was married to an abusive man that used their children as pawns just to spite her. It's a story of sobriety, community, hope, and a Hail Mary miracle of a relationship strategy that actually worked. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, a podcast that gives a voice to survivors of narcissistic abuse. I am Brandon Chadwick, but my friends call me Chad, and thanks for tuning into this episode. So what is a narcissist, you may ask? Well, for the purposes of this podcast, we refer to a narcissist as anyone who has displayed a pattern of behavior that shows a limited capacity to appreciate others' perspectives. It is that simple. And before we get to our episode with Delilah, I just wanted to thank everyone in the Narcissist Apocalypse community for listening to the show and sharing your thoughts by email, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. A big shout out to all of our friends on our Narcissist Apocalypse Facebook support group just for being a great group of people. So hello to all of you. And also a reminder, if you haven't left us a review on whatever podcast service you use, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, CastBox, etc., etc. Leave us a five-star written review if you can, or just a regular five-star review as it helps out with our show when it comes to rankings. Now, the quickest way to be part of our show is if you want to read a letter to your narcissist and be part of our Letters to Our Narcissist Compilation Episode, Volume 3. We have a voicemail recorder on our website to record. Go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. It's on the right side of the page, and it's always floating around. It's hard to miss. There's a button there that says Send Voicemail. Press it, and away you'll go. We're accumulating these letters for a Volume 3 of that type of episode, so send in those voicemails. If you want me or my old pal Melissa to read your letter instead, just send us a letter to NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. And now before I get out of my own way... The last thing I wanted to say about Delilah's story before we begin is that the strategy that she used on her husband and that you'll eventually hear is not a one-size-fit-all strategy. It fit his specific psychology. So we are in no way recommending that you copy what she did. And if that doesn't intrigue you enough to listen the whole way through this episode, I really don't know what would. So now, I'm officially going to get out of my own way here is my interview with Delilah. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse. I'm here with Delilah. How are you? Good, how are you? I am good. So today you are going to tell us your life story. My voice cracked there. You're you're going to tell us (laughs) your life story today, and it's uh, for everyone out there who's listening it's a very interesting story. It, we touch upon addiction. We touch upon 
your childhood in an addictive household and then what transpired after the fact and the way you've gone about everything is really inspiring, especially to get to where you are in your life that you're still here is pretty amazing going through everything that you gone that you went through. So I just want to thank you before you even begin for taking a uh, part of, uh, you know, this uh, podcast and this episode, and you're going to, I know you're going to help a lot of people. So I just want to thank you, Delilah, for being here today. And now without further ado, the floor is now yours. All right. Well, I want to start by kind of give you a little bit of uh, my backstory, my 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 beginning. Um, I was I was born into a family of dysfunction, addiction. You know, a, a generational um, just path of, of alcoholism, violence, um, all that all that stuff that it comes with with it, and. When my first, I would say my first narcissistic in my life was my father. He kind of role model for me my entire life. He was a a person that it was terrifying. He was um, he would terrorize us. Since you know, since I have memory, I remember episodes of of terror, sheer terror, and he was just a person that had a very short fuse. All of that, just kind of fast forward, um, my first relationship with uh, a narcissist was one of my first, my first boyfriend, serious boyfriend, and um, that's kind of like when I moved, when I wasn't born in the U.S., I was born in, uh, in Mexico, and in 95, I was about 19, I moved to the U.S., kind of and now looking back, it was like I was really running away from from this person, this this boyfriend. He was involved in um, in the cartel, the drug cartel. He was extremely dangerous. He was abusive physically and and um, emotionally, mentally. Um, I had no no coping mechanisms. I had no skills, no tools, um, emotional tools to to even acknowledge that I was in such a abusive relationship because, you know, that's all I've seen since I was born. That was in 95. So from the day I put foot in, in this new country, I felt that I was three. I was, I made it, you know, I survived all the shit. I passed through it. I am a warrior. I was just, I was so proud of myself of being, um, a survivor, really. Um, I became just, you know, there was no, nothing scary for me. I was self-sufficient. I was independent. I I thought of myself being a really tough cookie, you know. I left my abusive boyfriend, and I'm here on my own. And um, I just, my self-worth was really just, based on what I've been through and what I conquered, you know, I, I'm free. I can do whatever I can, whatever I want. I really basically just kind of reinvented myself. Um, At this this point, are you uh, a drinker yet? I was a drinker since I was 12. Okay. So since you were 12 years old. 
he has. But for the most part, that was how I coped with life. Um, and I kind of dragged it on until, you know, until my adult life. So, yeah, I drank, drank, drank. I party with my friends. Um, when I was in, uh, when I moved to the U.S., I, I just kind of made my life or I made a really nice life. I put myself back in school. I got my GD. I went back to college. All of that good stuff. I made money. I worked. I had series of, a couple of boyfriends, serious boyfriends, but um, they're all kind of, you know, the same. They were not as, as violent as nar- uh, my narcissist, my last one, but um, there was always that emotional, you know, gaming with them. So, and in your in your mind, you were already in your mind. I'm already a survivor in my life. I've already lived a full life in a sense you're at this point you're like 26 years old in a sense you might have lived two full lives you survived your family uh in one sense and then in another sense your boyfriend previous to that we're not going to be really getting into you survived that as well uh and, and the drug cartel aspect and now you're on your third life essentially right in this spot basically yeah, yeah. i felt like i just like i um i i I lived in survival mode, and for that, what it meant to me was I had to take care of myself with my own nails and claws. I had to, I was, me, it was, it was, there was nobody else to look around. There was no family. Um, I, I, I made myself to be in another country and voluntarily move away from my family, not because they didn't love me, was because I wanted out of that shit show. And so being in a, and, and you know, that's kind of like the common denominator for me was that I moved around a lot. I moved around in, you can imagine all the states I live in the States. I lived in California. I lived in Florida twice. I moved to Georgia. I went back and forth and I couldn't stay in one place more than a year but i loved it i was just like oh my god i'm just such a free spirit gypsy and you know if i could make if i was making money and i was doing what i like to do there was no stopping for me and i had like serious of uh, abusive relationships all along like every relationship i had was abusive in some way or another they either were abusive to me or they abused uh, a substance in 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 that order that was that was my ammo there was no no normalcy ever in my relationship so when i met this guy um i was so normalized with that behavior and with uh, with this functional behavior i was so gay with it that really this this transition was just for me was like all in a subconscious level. But let me just kind of like what what this guy and the stuff that I went through in the years of abuse, I don't think that this other three lives that I felt like survived would have prepared me for the kind of, you know, the kind of shit that that this guy was capable of doing. Um, This was in another level. This was this was a life or death situation. So, well, let me get started. We met in 2002. 
I was in a, I was on a date with um, with this other gentleman, this patron, and he kept asking me out and asking me out, and I was like, no, I don't go out with patrons, I don't go out with people at work, blah blah blah. And um, this really successful guy, he was like a computer scientist from India, and he was just this really kind. Um, he just he was just he just wanted to go for a date for dinner. So finally, I accepted. We went to this really posh restaurant and um, in Atlanta. And while we waiting for the, it was packed. While we waiting for the the table at the lobby, uh, the atrium, this huge atrium packed with people, and I felt that. Somebody was kind of looking at me. Like I felt somebody was staring at me. So I turn around and I see this couple, this um, good-looking couple. And um, I looked at him and I said, "Excuse me, do I know you?" Because I work at a huge club, a nightclub. So I I would see hundreds of people on a given day. So it was a very natural question for me to ask, like, "Do I know you from somewhere?" And he's like, "No, no, no. I'm sorry." I'm just admiring your outfit. You look amazing. And I was wearing, and I'm only going to emphasize that because later on it pops into the into the dynamic of how he was. I was wearing some, some kind of designer top. Uh, I think it was like Donna Karen or something like that. And he, um, it was kind of sheer. And I was going like braless, which I had really, I'm completely flat. So to me, that wasn't really an issue. So he was like really um, focused on my on my outfit, and he's like, "You just look amazing." I was like, "Oh, thank you." Um, I was waiting for the table. He he approached us again, and he's like, "You guys want to sit with us on this bench while we wait?" And that's how he started the conversation with the guy that I was on a date with. And from that day on, um, somewhere in the conversation with the guy, because I really didn't engage to him much um, that day. But he picked up where I worked, and um, long and behold, the next weekend, he shows up at my work. And the guy was a charmer. He was a great dresser. He pitched me this, I mean, from the get-go, this guy was everything I've ever waited for. Everything I, not waited, but it just sounds so cookie, but everything that I just, like about a, a, a person and and when this come this guy came into my life he said all the right things he you know he talked about how he he um his upbringing was very traumatic and when we went out every time we went out every single time I would call him and say hey you want to go out oh it's really late okay let's go and for me I let my guard down right away because he was so, he, he earned my trust by acting understanding of my trauma. I right away, right away, I fucking just spilled the beans. I was just like, <laughs> and by this time, I was such a heavy drinker, like working in that environment that I work at. It just literally spun it out of control. If, if I ever had any control over it. Um, I was drinking enormous amounts of liquor. So by then, my awareness was no. It was just, you know, this guy could have told me he was, uh, you know, 
Pinocchio, and I would have just believed anything he said. Another another way of him gaining your trust, do you think it had to do with him noticing how strong you were to get out of your previous situations and, 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 and mirroring that back to you in the sense of like, this guy can see, I am a strong person. I know what I've done is great. And this is the first person that is actually telling this back to me. Yep. I mean, it exactly. The things that, um, that he would say was like, Oh my God, this is unbelievable. Like, so you didn't speak English a year ago. And I was just like, Nope. And so you put yourself in college. Yep. So you, when you go from here and we party our asses off, then you go and I was like, I'll just go to the drafting table and draft for seven hours and then go to school and then do this. And he, you could see the, and this is, I thought it was admiration, but it was complete envy. Um, because I could just see like how he, in my eyes, I was like, Oh my God, he admires all of this things about me, you know, and the things that he loved the most is the things that at the end just really wanted to destroy. Um, and I would tell him, you know, you, you literally wanted to destroy my life. So yes, he was, he quickly saw how resilient and resourceful and a fighter and a survivor I was. Um, those were traits that it, it, it attracted him even more, but I thought, you know, I thought he was a, in a good, in a good way, but, um, things did not turn out to be (laughs) good. And Um, I have another question for you and I'm sorry for interrupting, but it's, it's, you know, you've gone through all these things in your life and I'm sure you've never taken a break and uh, you might be tired emotionally in a lot of ways. Do you see Absolutely. him as a savior in some sort of way, or at least being able to breathe and that mm-hmm. he could come in and, and he'd be like, Oh, I can take a little break here of, of me being on the go, 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 go. And now here's this guy that might be my savior. Is that something that you really kind of trapped you in as well? Yes. Um, my state of mind when I met him, I was very lonely. Even though I was a go-getter and I was doing all this physical things and I was doing all these things that society required me and all this stuff, at the end of the day, I was the loneliest I've ever been. So at this point, all of these factors contributed to really the locking of trust that you have in him and now no matter what is going to happen you're so locked in you uh, are going to probably forgive a lot of things that eventually start occurring absolutely um he um you know immediately immediately from day one he started trust you know testing my trust See how far he'll go. Um, not in a conscious level, but I think he would just do things. And then he was, I'm sure he was very satisfied with the fact that I didn't leave him, you know? Because most people would just say, this guy is crazy. Um, I didn't. 
because I was okay with it. And because I was like, you know, so what? He's a freaking blackout drinker and heavy drinker. And we party awesome. And we have the best sex. And we have so much in common. And I could just be my craziest, craziest self. By then, I was just really, um, uh, how can I put it? Like, my, my, my outing. My drinking outings, my partying was just really getting out of control. And it was, I was just kind of living this duality. I was just, uh, uh, at night, I would just party, 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 party. And during the day, I would just put myself in school, you know, sleep and hang over and do those two things until I met him. So didn't even go through about three months of courtship where um, I remember having a conversation with my mom and she said to me, you know, and this is, I mean, God bless her, but I remember the conversation because she said to me, when are you going to, you know, when are you going to like just come back or settle? Like I'm worried about you, you know, you don't you want to have kids? And I'm sure that she didn't mean anything about it. But because I was in such a state of mind and so depressed and lonely, that really got stuck in my head. And remember, I met this guy that he, in my eyes, he was such a great dad because he was fighting for his kid and all. So my guards were down. I, and I, it's very hard for me to accept this about my re, my my life, my reality. But I made uh, a conscious decision to stop taking my my, my birth control pills. At that point, at that point, I was like, this is the perfect guy for me. And he told me he loved me in three months, and I told him I loved him. <laughs> and um, when I told him, when I told him, I was like, I'm not taking my birth control pills. And he was like, oh, great. I love kids. I love kids. And, yeah, don't worry about it. And I kind of lied to him that I lied to him because I said, you know, I need to go get more, um, but because I'm not taking them. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I love kids. And that was to me like, ding, 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 ding. It's just like, he is a winner. He, this is, this is in my dysfunctional thinking. This was to me the best thing that ever happened. So, um, not even three months, three, four months got pregnant. And, you know, when somebody listens to my story, I, I was kind of hesitant because I still have so much judgment to myself. Like I, I still have, I had to work through so much shame with all of this process. But if I don't stay honest with how I was thinking in, in that moment, then I'm not really doing any I'm doing a disservice to people that are listening and they're seeking for answers and they need to relate to somebody else's story. So um, I'm not, you know, my kids are my life now and, and, and I cannot imagine myself being without my children. But it's a really hard pill, pill to swallow, acknowledging the fact that how I had my children was just so dysfunctional, you know. Um, when I got pregnant with my daughter, my oldest daughter, I knew 
he started kind of shifting his behavior. And I could not conciliate, I could not um, put those two parts of him together. Like, they did not make sense. And what my, um, my thinking was, if I cannot make sense of it, I'm just going to bypass it. So I keep bypassing all these red flags and bypassing and bypassing. By then, you know, when, when the pregnancy came, when I realized what a mess have I done, I, the, the only difference here is that I couldn't get out of, or in my mind, I couldn't get out of this relationship as easy because now there was a child involved. Um, and in my mind, and I know millions of women do this on every single day. They go on and they put themselves first and their child first. And they go on and become single parents and all of that amazing stuff. But for me, I was like, what have I done? I'm so ashamed. Um, I'm so embarrassed. And I could not believe that I was so dumb and that I had made so many concessions and this tough cookie is just not a tough cookie. I was just like, I was a failure. And just the fact of even thinking about going back to my family and telling them what a mistake I've made, it was just not even acceptable to me. I could not even face that fact. So I just, I was just like, I'm just going to make this work. I'm just going to make it work. But, you know, he went... From that moment on, once he had, once he knew that he had me like latched on with this pregnancy, he basically just went from Mister Nice to when he drank, he was a horrible human being. Um, I did not drink then, and during my both my pregnancies, I didn't drink. So it gave me kind of like a window a window of um, sobriety, if you would say. I wasn't in any 12-step program or anything, but it just got me sober enough to see the craziness that I was that I surrounded myself with. And so, you know, there were fightings. There were so many um, um, control issues. I mean, I had my first child. He was a mother goose. He would not let me change her diapers. He would just, like, wanted to care for the baby. He knew every answer. His mother would come up, and his mother, which is the biggest enabler and the biggest, what they call, monkey, I don't know. Flying monkey. Yes. She was the one that funded all the fights with uh, to give the, you know, the, the um, other son's um, custody. She was, like, the biggest. Um, enabler for him, and she still remains that. And so, um, so he's you know, using the child him. at this point as a way to have controlling behavior. Um, what do you mean? Sorry, I didn't hear you. Sorry, he's he's using your child as a way to exhibit oh. controlling behavior. Absolutely. You know, when I had my daughter, and he literally took over the whole caring of of the nursery and everything. I did not know then, but I went through a severe postpartum depression. I was a mess. I wanted to die. I, I was so sad and upset and just 
it felt like I had to kind of like I have I allow him just to take over because I was in such a such a bad shape, you know. And so in a way, it was like he was so controlling that I was like I didn't even have the energy to fight him. I um, we moved around a lot, so we moved to Savannah and. You know, this is the thing about it. It's like I was still so um, involved in my school. I had a, I got a scholarship in SCAD, which is this amazing art school that is very, very hard to get in. I had amazing grades. I was juggling my daughter in was able to get into this school. It was just such an accomplishment. But yet, he would still say things like, you're a terrible mom. You don't know how to feed the kid. You don't know how to do this. You know, God, you know, you're going to go to school, but then you don't even know how to present a paper, and you don't even know how to write English. And it was just this, like, he would give me three, four compliments, and he would berate me with a shit ton of criticism. And um, at that point, when I got pregnant with my with my son, my daughter was not even, you know, a year old, and um, I this was a complete, you know, fluke. I was it wasn't planned. Just when I got the pregnancy test, I was like, "Bup." There it goes, you know, I'm really now stuck with this guy. And um, so at this point, you are pregnant with your second child. You are in this relationship, still struggling possibly with postpartum depression while this is all kind of going on, or at least uh, a little remnants if it's still around. You were depressed before yeah. you even had the postpartum depression. You're being. You're, you're being devalued pretty hard at this point where you're getting the compliments, but then you get the real devaluation after and then probably a little bit of a love bombing after that. You have the controlling behavior on his part. His mother is in there who is working on his side and always probably championing him, maybe even saying... Uh, just constantly saying nice things about him, which makes things worse. You're isolated from everyone. You are constantly moving around. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you probably feel like you're, you're, as you just said before, I started talking, you're a little bit cooked in your mind right now. Like stick a fork in you. Like this is my life. And, you know, now you're in Georgia is it Savannah, Savannah, Georgia? And uh, so at this point, what is your mindset? What is your, uh, you know, you're, I assume you're about to have your baby as well. Uh, you're, where are your addictions? Like what's going on with you with all of this kind of going on? So um, in between my children, you know, I didn't drink um, during the whole period of my first pregnancy. As soon as I felt like I was able to do it, I started drinking again and drinking and drinking. It went from one cocktail to maybe two to maybe two and a half because I couldn't get up with the baby later. And it was just like everything went around my drinking, you know. Um, That was kind of like I would cope with 
anything. And, you know, that's the way I was going to cope with my postpartum depression, my drinking. So for him, drinking was comfortable and okay as long as he was having a good time. But when he was in a bad mood or if he was not up to drinking that day, and if he ever saw me drinking, he would just be like, you're a fucking drunk. You're a bitch. You're done. And just, like, name-calling me and berating me and stuff. So by the time um, I was with my second pregnancy, I, um, I felt I felt like I was just, like he wasn't kind anymore. He was just this extremely neurotic, constantly yelling, constantly. He worked at home, but he had a warehouse and he, you know, he had a business with his mom. So, you know, it just, I was in such a state of sadness. Like it was, I could not believe that I was in this relationship. And that was like, to me, I, I felt like I had no, no exit. So, I would just fight and hope for a good day with him. And if um, if we fought and he would say things and he would pass out, I knew that the next day it was going to be better, hopefully. And if he was in a bad mood, um, you know, I fear for that because he would just retaliate. And so it, at this point, we constantly fought, constantly. But then he would love on me and he would just like, We'll fight really horrible one, you know, the night before. And then he'll be like, let's go to lunch to, you know, this hotel. Let's go to brunch. Let's go to this expedition. Let's go to this. He had a way of like, whenever he knew that he was, um, that his behavior, behavior was really bad. He would just, the next thing would correct it by, and that's how he manipulated me for a very long time. Because he would say, you know, I know I'm an asshole. I know I'm, a, I'm this and that. And I scream a lot and la, la, la. But you get the best of me, too. And he was, he was um, a really good provider. He was a um, adventurous and fearless. And, you know, we had so many, like, excursions and traveling and the places we lived. He was like. He was the kind of guy that if he had, he, he funded basically his entire, his, all his companies that he had, he had like three or four, he fun, he funded them through his parents because he had a lot of money. So he would calm them into, and I know now the fact that he calmed them and she was willing participant because she had so much guilt for how, how he was, what he was put through, my ex. So he had a way of like, you know, let's go crab fishing and just like the stuff that he would come up with. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is just it will make me forget right away, you know, what he did before. And he was so involved with my kids. And so, um, you know, he was just he the both sides of him just did not make sense. When I was when I was pregnant with my second son, I was very sick. So I was hospitalized for a very long time. And that kind of put a little stop on it, but um, it continues throughout the years. By then, 
by then, by the time my, both my children were toddlers, I remember one time he got so hammered and um, he was like really hungover the next day. And we were going out somewhere. We were driving around um, Savannah and he said something to me. And the whole conversation, I don't even know how it started, but he said to me, you know what? You know who you are. You're just a fucking gold digger. You know, you, he, he started telling the story to himself, but he started believing it, like facts that were not actual facts. Like he said to me, when I first met you, I found you in this bar and you were this nobody and you just wanted my money. And all, I was like, what? And he started yelling and yelling and calling all those names. And he said, you know, I was just, you know, that I knew right away that I was a, he knew right away that I was a gold digger and that I was this and that. And I went into, and see his rage and our fighting, it escalated my rage. I didn't know how to stop him. So I would just rage back. So that was like our, our dynamic. So by then, in this moment, we're in the car with my daughter. He yelled and called me names and all of that, and I lost it. And I got out of the car. So then he followed me. He pulled over, and he pulled over into parking lot. And in the parking lot, um, he shut the door, and we realized that my daughter was in the car. Uh, we, we locked her in. And that scared the living Jesus out of both of us. I started crying. I was just like, I can't go. I can't, I cannot keep going with this. So we ended up going to, he actually had, um, he was like, you know, I don't want to, need to, I don't want to lose you. I wanted to go to get help. So he gets this therapist and she, um, she, we had the appointment and it was couples therapy. And we went to about, Three or four sessions, and, you know, like the first two sessions, she's like, okay, I'm going to stop you there. She's like, let me just bring up something so obvious. He's like, do you realize what the name he's calling you? He doesn't call you by your name. He tells you, he, he always says to you, what are you talking about? Are you retarded? Are you stupid? And I was like, oh, yeah, he does that a lot. And she's like, okay, well, how do you feel about that? And I was so numb by then with his behavior that I was like, he's an asshole. That's all. And she's like, no, 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 no. It was like, I could see her eyes just turning wide. And we went for another maybe two, three sessions more. And then, you know, he, she saw how volatile he was short fuse. Um, Something that I left about him, uh, left um, untold, was that he was in the army. He was special forces. He was trained. He served, I don't know how many years in the army, but this guy was quite scary. And um, you know, when when we were in therapy, she was able to see the kind of uh, level of intensity he would get, the rage and all. And so um, one day she, she called me and she said, I want to, I want you just, I want to talk to you just alone. Um, this, this session is going to be alone. And she's like, um, I wanted you to be alone because I need you to, I want to give you my professional advice uh, because I, it's in your best interest and in my best interest 
that you know, she's like, do you know what his prior relationships were like? And I was like, mm, yeah. I mean, he kind of told me what he wanted me to know, but I didn't know it at all. And she's like, well, his first wife, when he went to, when he enlisted in the army, he um, slapped her so hard in the face that left her deaf uh, from one ear. Um, his then the mother of his child, which was his second relationship, not married, but they were together. Um, the reason why she took his son, their son away was because she threatened him to leave and take the child with her, and he pulled his block and um, um, put it in her head um, on the floor, punched her fell on the floor and then put the Glock in her head and said, if you ever take my child away, I'll kill you. So he, he was in jail. I, when she told me that, I, I was shocked. And I just could not believe it. And she was just like, and this is the first time I heard about narcissism, but she didn't say it. She didn't say the name narcissism. She said, this person is a verbal abuser. And she gave me this book. And she said to me, I can no longer treat him. I can treat you because he is um, hes so volatile that I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to restrain his behavior during our sessions. So he doesn't have any uh, response to female authority. He is a loose cannon. And to be honest with you, my warning, my professional warning is for you to leave this guy. And I would never advise this to my clients, but my patients, but because of his behavior, he is a ticking bomb and he, he is dangerous. And I was just like listening to this, this like in the state of numbness. And then she went further to say, people like this, it's really hard for them to change because it's kind of like rewinding the bobbin of a, of a motor, you know, the, the copper bobbin. It's like you have to undo the whole wire and then rewire this slowly, slowly throughout their, their life. And I don't think this guy is willing to change at all. Like he has not even, doesn't even have a conscience about what he's doing. So with that information, I went and I told him what she said, and he said, I'm going to talk to this bitch. And um, he said, you would never do the things that they did, and she's full of shit, and, you know, I'm a different person. And so, you know, that was it. And I was okay with that information. I was like, I put it under the rug. I... um. But the plant, the seed was planted, you know. I was just like, even though I wasn't reacting the way that I should have been reacting, my instinct, my survival instinct was kicking in, and I was just getting to the point where I was, like, becoming fully aware that I had to strategize, that I had to get an exit strategy, that I was in danger, and that this guy was, above being a, a rageaholic and an abusive, uh, verbally abusive person, he was actually dangerous. Um, Your therapist, so, did you continue to see her after I the fact? Saw her for, yeah, I saw her for maybe about 
two, three months. And then, um, then I just made up an excuse. I, you know, my drinking was just kind of like debilitating me about doing, making any rational decisions. Um, I said, you know, I couldn't, I didn't have the money. I didn't, the kids were, you know, alone. And I made up all this bullshit. And to be honest with you, it was just the fact that I couldn't face reality. I was too afraid to face reality. So do you even recognize who you are anymore at this point? No, no. I was like, who the fuck is this person? Like you, you, at the beginning of our, of of the story of your life, I mean, you were a self-sufficient, yes, you had your problems and you have addiction problems, but now because of this person, you're now a a rager. Uh, you're very depressed. You have all of these things kind of going on, uh, how do you break out of that? So, thank God. And this is, um, things happen for a reason. And I know now that, that, uh, you know, what we thought it was the end of our life in, in, uh, as we, as we had it was actually the beginning of my recovery because, um, 2009, we lost everything. We, his, a couple of his companies were in lawsuits. Um, it just, there was so much. The, um, in my mind, I always thought we were, and he always would say, we're a team. When he needed something from me, when he needed to, he needed me to work in his trade shows and his company and all this, it was, we, we're doing this for our family. We are a team. We need to get through this. We lost everything. We need to, we have like, this amount of money. We need to like, what are we going to do? And he was so desperate at that point because we were losing our home. We're losing everything. He's like, you know what? I think this is the best time to maybe regroup. We have this amount of money. We're going to lose everything. We're going to lose everything. And I just went into a panic mode. Had I stepped back a little bit, I would have been, I would have said, wait a minute, we have options, but I didn't know any options because that's how he presented things in panic. And he was like, we need to grab this money and we need to move back to Mexico and just stay there and lay low for a couple of years until I can regroup and we can think of something else and strategize. And to me, that was the saving grace. That was the green light that I was waiting for because deep down, I had this glimpses of reality that were like shining to me. I was like, this is so wrong. And Something has to change. So when he said that, I, I absolutely agreed to it. I was like, it gives me a chance to get close to my family, and I have a chance to actually leave him. Um, I just knew it. Because you have a support system there. Yes, because I needed help. Mm-hmm. So, um, sorry. Let me read book. Okay. Um, so, yeah. We um, sold everything. When I told my family what we were doing, they thought we were crazy. They're like, no, honey, it's the opposite way. People leave this country to go for a better future. You don't move back to Mexico. Like, what the hell are you thinking? What the hell are you guys going to do here? And I couldn't really say anything because I had, I had, I saw my family every year. But I was in my best behavior when I saw my family. They never saw me as a blackout drinker. They never saw the chaos I lived in. I always presented myself with, 
gifts and presents and beautiful, you know, family and pictures and shit. They never saw the back end of my alley. So when we got there, um, we, you know, he, one of his things that I loved so much about him is that he was fearless. So it made things so easy for me. It, I, I would do things that I was never capable of doing had it not been because he would push me through it. So, you know, he's like, we need to open a business. We need to open this pizza parlors. And I was like, what the fuck do you know? Do you know about pizza? And he's like, pizza, pizza. We just need to do it. And we did it. And we became very successful at it. And we not only opened one, we opened three more. Um, the thing was, he would thrive into creating. He was a very creative person, just as much as I was. You know, remember I went to art school and I was into interior design programming. So we, the concept of this place was from scratch. We built the ovens from scratch. Him and I, we had such a bond in that time and almost felt like things could really work out. We had so much, our time was so occupied in creative things that um, the drinking really didn't interfere with us. We were just functioning, drinking, building, and having a really good time until reality happened. Until now that we're done with this restaurant, now we have to make them work and operate them. And guess what? The guy did not speak Spanish. And he never wanted to speak Spanish because we were a subculture to him. And we were like, you know, you're just a Mexican, he used to call me. And he was like... You know, you don't know how to do shit, but yet um, he didn't speak Spanish. So I basically forced by him because I didn't want to be part of this. Um, I became in control of the entire business. And the more control I took over, the more it spun him out of control, you know. So he became, he am the he just literally upped the abuse to a thousand percent. Um, not only was he abusive and, and now he was more physical, but now he would use things like, um, you know, he was like, he would use sleep deprivation. He would, he would come obliterated drunk. And, you know, this restaurant, when you operate to one restaurant, but you operate three restaurants with full staff and everything, I didn't leave home until about three in the morning and I'll come home and he'll be like doing fighting and, and, and force me to have sex and get me drunk. And then he would, there was so much deprivation by then. And, um, if I fought him back, he would be like, I'm going to get even. And he would tell me he was going to get even And that fear of him getting even I couldn't even sleep. He would come in in random times of the night and wake me up and call me like, hey, drunko, get up. You know, you lost this and that and that. What is my stuff? And he would create scenes in the middle of the night. In a, um, in a, it's kind of, I'm, I don't have any experience of this, but I assume this is what they do uh, as, a, as a form of... Uh, in the tor- army. And in the army is a form of like a torture, maybe Absolutely. to even get uh, information out of people. Absolutely. He was breaking me. He was absolutely breaking me. He knew. And, and he became so hateful 
of me, of who I was, like all the things that he loved about me, he absolutely hated them. He was like, I'm going to destroy you. And I've never, you know, when somebody tells you that, it really was like, holy shit. Like, oh my God, like this is real. Like he would um, humiliate me in public. He will humiliate me in front of my children. He would ridicule me. I was so afraid of being ridiculed in public. And from the very beginning, that was one of his tactics because he knew it. So he will cause scenes. He will go into the restaurants and grab the money from me. He will say he, you know, sometimes we needed him to cook in one of the restaurants or whatever. And he would um, just not show up or he would show up and then take off in the middle of a shift or he would fire people random people like no you're fired and like what the fuck are you doing you're he's fired what do you have a problem with that and it was this like he was on a mission to break me until you know death like to that point i knew it that he uh, um i could not rely on him he would make he would go above and beyond to fuck with my daily routine so that i had that he, I had like all this, you know, problems so that I couldn't function. And guess what? The thing was that I was so resourceful and I was the, the, the amount of pain and humiliation and, and dysfunction that I was able to take because of my upbringing. That's what, put, that's what made my process longer. I didn't hit a bottom until I was about to die because I could tolerate so much pain. What, what, what's crazy here in a, in, a, in a strange way is that he's so focused on destroying you that in a way he doesn't even realize that he's destroying his own business and family. Like he's destroying his livelihood just to spite you. Yep, and he, and at the end of it, he literally said that, um, he said, I'm going to destroy you. I'd rather die. I'd rather waste my entire money for you to fight you so you don't get our children back, so you don't get, you know, um, so that we, I'd rather see you losing the entire business than, than you keeping it and, 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 and getting away with it. And basically that's what happened, like. You know, in 2014, that's when um, my mother and everybody came for Easter. And they're like, they did an intervention. They're like, you're going to die. I don't know what the hell's going on, but you're, you know, we're afraid for you. We think you're going to commit suicide like your brother. You say, we think you're just killing yourself slowly. And um, it kind of worked, but um, I didn't, I didn't want to stop drinking. I just couldn't stop drinking. At this point, that was the only thing I could, it was my only coping mechanism to my ex's abuse. So um, this went on for a while, but then they found out about how abusive he was. And they're like, what the hell? Why did you not tell us about this before? By then, my ex had become so paranoid about shit, about everything. Then he kept, like, accusing me of embezzlement. He accused me of stealing his money, of uh, funneling money to my parents, all this, all this theories that he had. So 
my mom, her, you know, found out about it, and she go in a meeting with him, and she and you know, my my parents been divorced for a very long time. So basically, in my family, the women are kind of like the ones that kind of rule the rooster. Like every single one of them is one stronger female after the next one, and that's why the shame that I felt was because how could I allow myself to get to this point? So um. When she called a meeting with him, I was like, you don't even speak English. How am I going to communicate with him? And she's like, you know, help me. And she, she's like, help me tell him this. And she sat down, and she, this little itty-bitty lady in her 70s, she just said, said to him, um, I don't know, John, I guess that's his name, um, I want you to know that Delilah has a family and that what you're saying about her and accusing her of stealing and all these things that you're saying that she did. Um, we don't know what that comes from, but if whatever you say is true, then you need to get a divorce. Like, you know, a family cannot go on like this. And he's like, of course, we're going to divorce and we're going to do this. And I'm going to take the kids away from her and blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, so be it. We fully support her. And I want you to know, and I'm calling you today because I want to see you straight in the eye. And I want to tell you that she has a family, that we love her no matter what, and that she's going to be fine. And that just, that's what I needed to hear. Um, you know, I've been away for so long um, that I just didn't realize nobody loved me. And I didn't realize it until then that my family loved me all along. And that unconditional love was always available to me. But um, this was the time that he gave me the strength. And from that point on, I just, I just like, I knew it. I knew what I had to get out of this. And it was just, this was like my, my white light that, um, you know, people you know, say, you know, you hear God talking to you, whatever. This was to me, that was like the moment of truth, the moment I needed to have the urge to make a change in my life. I remember um, thinking, okay, I need help. I'm going to die. And um, my, my, I pick up the phone, I call him. And he, you know, he picked up and he's like, what do you want? And I was like, you need to come. Because, you know, the reason why never, you know, we, by that point, we were, I was so sure that I, need, that I needed to leave him. And every time I would say, just, you just need to, we need to separate because this is, this is too much. We, we're going to, you know, we need to get a divorce. And he would say, go ahead and do that. And I'll make sure that you lose the kids. No court system is going to leave them in Mexico. Uh, no judge, I'm sorry. No, uh, I'm going to tell them all the shit you did. I'm going to lie, which he did. He actually accused me to the, the, the what's in Mexico, the IRS. He actually made false accusations of embezzlement. And and um, he, that's the level. That's the level. You know, that was the level of commitment he had to destroy me. He was able, he he was just determined to destroy me. 
So when I would bring up the divorce, he would just like, you know, go ahead and leave. He's like, you know what? Go ahead and leave. You just leave my kids because I will tell every judge in every court hearing that you're crazy, that you're a drug dealer, that you're this. And um, by the way, my, our kids don't even like you. They don't like you. They don't care if you're around us. And to me, every time he would say that, it would just be the most painful thing I've ever heard. It made me feel so lonely to know that I was um, living with somebody and I, they hated me so much, you know? So um, when, when I realized that morning was that I, in order for him to leave, I had to give my kids up on a temporary basis. And um, I called him and I said, you need to come and get the kids. I need help. I need to get sober. I need to sell this restaurant, and I can't do it alone. And if you want to stay with them, you can go ahead and come and get them. And that was the hardest thing I've ever did. Um, you know, I he he's like, you must be the craziest person. And I was just like, I'm done. And he's like, you need to think about it really hard because it's not what you think is going to happen. And um, he came back and got him. He signed um, my, my sister. She's an attorney. She drew some sort of like a temporary custody uh, Term, you know, like a legal document that allow us to that allowed him to fly with them and make any decision while I was in, in, in Mexico. But this was a temporary situation. He left fully. He signed the document. He knew what my intention was, which it was sell the restaurants get help, get sober, and then we will figure something else there. Like, we will go through the process of divorce in the U.S. He signed the document. He flew with the kids, completely obliterated, drunk, um, flew to Nashville where his family was. And as soon as he landed, he sent me an email saying, fuck you, bitch, you're done. And from that day on, caught up. Oh, lost contact with me. He, you know, he had agreed to help me um, pay some of the debt that we were in with all these contracts and things like that. And um, basically, he was like, you're on your own. And you can come back or you don't have to come back. You can die if you want to. And the kids are mine. And um, it went on for 18 months. Um, that whole time that, you know, from that day on, I went to get help. I went on to um, going to AA meetings. I got sober with the help. My sister helped me so much. You know, all my family, even my dad. It was this beautiful, like, the amount of support I had from every single family member. It was just unbelievable. Um, my dad was like, you tell me when and where, and I can have this guy too. <laughs> This is crazy. Like, you know. Um, so a, a lot of people wouldn't have made that decision that you did, but you had 
your sister there. You had your family there supporting you. You had yes. legal papers drawn up. And in a way, you gave him this win, him not realizing that it was really just a temporary win, but you gave him possibly mm-hmm. this feeling so you could get yourself into the best mental shape possible. So then when yeah. you were when you were ready, because eventually you did get to be ready to dig in and then get ready for the real fight, but you had to be mentally prepared to do that. And a lot of people would have been very scared to do what you did, but you did it. And in the long run, it worked out. Yes. My sister set up this, um, my first meeting. She waited for me outside and she told me, and she told me this. She was like, listen, from a legal standpoint of view, you have no chance in hell to fight this person. If you don't stay sober, no Dutch is going to give you the kids back. If you, if you're a blackout drinker, like forget about it. Don't even think about it. So that was like what propelled me to get sober initially. That's, that was my main focus. I was like, I'm going to lose my kids. I don't, I didn't want to lose my kids. You know, once I got myself into a community of recovery with the 12 steps, I started getting better, and I um, I never lost hope. I I I was so I surrounded God. I don't know. And to this point, when you get to these meetings, what this breaks it down to is basically you just have to surround yourself with a support system. You have to surrender yourself to the not to the perception that you run the show. You need to put it up there to something higher than you, a higher power. So you have to build some sort of um, spiritual connection and you have to start making healthier connections, human connections with this community. And that's how kind of started for me, started that healing process. Um, And within within that system, uh, I guess Mm -hmm. you met, uh, obviously, you know, you were at AA Within that system, you met a lot of, I guess, some, not all, but, you know, some women in AA are coming from these types of environments as well. So you're probably able to connect as a support group separately on the abuse level and not just the alcohol aspect. Yeah. And, and, and I didn't get involved, you know, initially that was like my saving grace and that's how I needed to be sober in order to get my head clear and, you know, take the next step and the next step and the next step. This was a day by day, hour by hour. Eventually I made it back to the U S with my own resources. He kept blocking me from getting credit cards. He would not give me, you know, he would not allow me to get an address, uh, a U.S. address for a credit card. He would not even let me allow me to use his address to get a bank account or a phone. He was like financially abusing me from a far away, preventing me from getting back to the U.S. So my God, my higher power work things around and shit started happening really fast. And um, I was able to get back on my own. I stayed with him for 17 days in his apartment with the kids. By this time, we decided to, that you know, a common ground would be Florida because I lived in Florida before and because, you know, I was able, you know, it was just, we, we agreed on that. 
So he moved the kids to Florida. He allowed me to live there for 17 days until I got back on my feet. And basically, I could not wait one more one single day. I um, quickly got a job. I was able to con my way around getting a convince this poor lady in a bank to give me uh, um, a use. I I took one. I stole one of his bills with an address. I'm not sure this is illegal, but you know, um, he and and I showed it to the teller, and I said to her, "I need to open a checking account because I needed to get my, you know, my life back." And she's like, "We can't do that. It's not in your name." And I was like, "Listen," and I seriously, I was like, "Listen, I'm in this very abusive relationship. I'm just trying to get back on my feet. Please give me an account, a checking account, and I promise you." That as soon as I get an address, a permanent address, I'll give it to you. And she gave it to me. I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. No, this is beautiful. They just keep happening, you know. And it, it, it kept giving me hope to do the next right thing. So um, I, uh, right away, I found a, um, a AA meetings, you know, in my in my neighborhood. And um, I got to uh, the meetings, the support system, and, it, you know, my structure, my routine, my structure for my, my day-to-day structure was very, very disciplined. So I had, um, I was very focused. And to this point, um, he, he noticed and he knew that no matter what I did, he did. I was going to bounce back, and I was going to just not lose my cool. And raging was not an option for me anymore. So he started learning about my boundaries and things that I did not know and that I learned and that I was like, this is, this is new, learn, new learned behavior for me, you know? And I was just really kind of um, learning how to be a different person. And he went on from, like, I'm going to take their kids away from you, and I'm just going to, like, you're never going to see them, to now is like, oh, shit, well, now she's giving her life back. Well, I need help now. You need to take the kids for two days out of the week. And my thing was, and I didn't know until later that what I was really applying, the technique of the gray rock technique, I instinctively knew, even though I didn't have a name for it until later, I found that it actually was a real, you know, technique, was the fact that I knew that with this guy, I had to have zero retaliation. Um, I knew that whatever he, whatever action he took was because he wanted to exercise control over me. So he would say, you need to take, take the kids, you know, for the weekend. Okay, no problem. Well, it's got to be in the afternoon, and then you got to drop them off, and then you got to pick them up, and then you have to do this. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll see them this time. And every, every time, he would just see my reaction, and he did not know what to do. And at one point, like, he kept them. Still, he's like, but you're not going to get him. You're not getting them back. You're not going to get him back, and you're not getting the divorce. And if you want to get divorced, then you're going to have to pay for it. And I'm going to make sure that you don't get a penny from me. And 
I'm going to tell them what a drunk you were, and you left them, and you abandoned your children for 18 months. And I was like, okay. And I literally, my focus has been that, um, actually, we're not even divorced yet. Um, We've been separated for this whole time. He lives in another state. My, eventually, my children, um, you know, we we started spending more and more time together. They spend nights with me. And he started saying things like, you know, I'm done taking care of them. Now you need to, like, be a grown-up and take care of them. So guess what? It's your turn. That was his way of saying, I can't take care of them. This is this up. is all absolutely amazing that psychologically you went into this whole entire thing. You proved yourself that you are a capable person. You don't have to drink anymore. And absolutely. in that process of being clear, you know, his whole thing was getting a reaction out of you. And once he stopped yeah. getting that reaction out of you, there was no satisfaction in it anymore. So yep. he was using the children as a pawn, as pawns. And, and when they weren't pawns anymore and you're not showing any response, the real him comes out, the lazy him, the one that doesn't, the one who sticks everything in his closet when you come over to show that he, he is someone who cleans when in reality he, he's not clean. And, uh, you know, eventually the cracks will eventually show as long as you didn't feed into what he wanted. And once that stopped, miraculously, without really doing anything, by doing nothing, you started getting what you wanted without having to put any anger or frustration in a way or sadness it came to you and it's a mere you know uh, i don't it's i don't know how many cases like this would would happen like that but it was really a miracle in that sense of a lot of people would have to be go to court for years and years and years yeah. and, you know mm-hmm. with someone with that type of attitude with that type of spite and in your case you just let their his natural tendency eventually come out based upon the psycho- his specific type of psychology. Yes. And at this point, I was already very involved with my 12-step program. So, you know, I had sponsors. I had people that I talked to all the time. So they were like, you know, at this point, do what works best for you right now. That is not going to affect your sobriety and your state of mind. And it doesn't have to be forever. It's just a temporary solution. And so I went from temporary solution to temporary solution, to temporary solution, day by day by day, until finally, finally this guy um, got the right idea to move back with his mother, put a pot farm or something like that, a hemp farm in Nashville, and literally gave me full, um, you know, control of my kids, of my other, you know, full custody of my children, unofficial, of course. Um, I've never even bring up the divorce because at this point I am okay with this until he finds his next victim or if he's ready, he will file for divorce. But at this point I have what I need, which is my children. I have a life. I have, I'm sober. 
Um, I have serenity. I have a, a peace of mind. He actually has gotten to the point where he pays half of the rent. He's not, it's not perfect, and I'm always struggling with money. But to the point that he's, cons- he's been consistent for two years, Chad, paying rent and staying involved with the kids. Um, looking out for the kids' best interests. We moved to a different county, and he pays for this so that the kids can go to better schools. We are, in a way, we're better parents than we've ever been, ever. And, you know, sometimes I have to co-parent with him, which it doesn't work. So now I learn a new word, which is counter-parenting, which basically what it is is, you know, he is a parent when he's with them. He's a, 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 the dad that he's always been, and it doesn't match my beliefs anymore. So when my kids are with me, they are here with my own, with my boundaries set for myself, with my own, you know, my limits. They know what's acceptable, what's not, and that shit that flies with their dad when they are there it doesn't fly here. And it's all about all of this is just a new learned behavior for me. And this is the thing. If anybody that is seeking some sort of help or, or this little bit of light of hope, just the fact that you don't need to know, you know, I didn't know what the hell was happening with me. I just knew I was in this chaos, but I knew in the bottom of my Stomach. I knew that there was something very wrong, and um, just the fact that you can that you can realize that you're not crazy, and that there is hope. That nothing is hopeless. Like the worst situation you've ever been, it's not forever. It's never forever, and it's an ongoing process. This journey I'm in now, it's going to be for life. Like I know now that if I don't, if I don't stay emotionally fit, and if I don't stay in the core values, I have to be physically fit. I have to be emotionally fit. I have to be spiritually fit. If I don't take care of myself, you know, and I'm realizing that now, it's like I feel so empowered because of all the love that I surround myself with, you know, the people that care for me, the genuine people that really show me love. I learned to be forgiving to myself. I need, um, I learned to be kind to myself. I now know that I have everything within me. If I do these three things and if I, you know, um, know that I don't run the show, that I, there's something bigger than me that is helping me guiding through life. Um, and if I, if I don't stay emotionally fit and go and seek for help, ask for help, there's nothing, there's no shame in whatever the shittiest things you've ever done. And I've done, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I've done things that I am so, I was so ashamed of that it, it stopped me from getting help. So, you know, later um, in my recovery, I found other 12-step groups. I found ACA groups, which is um, adult children of alcoholics um, and dysfunctional families. And that really set even further my progress and my recovery. So 
there's always work to do and I'm I'm not always in the best shape and I'm still struggling with depression and anxiety and I still struggle with you know the isms and I still struggle with you know he he became you know I I sometimes I wonder why I stay with him for so long and to be honest with you, the answers I give to myself is I use him. I weaponize my relationship. I, I weaponize him to self-destruct me. Um, I was inflicting a like a self-induced punishment by staying with him. I didn't know I was worth fighting. Um, he was just as addictive as alcohol. I mean, it was the same premise, the same dynamic. And... Um, if I do the three things on a, you know, sometimes I do them better than other days. Sometimes I have a really shitty day. Sometimes I yell. And, you know, the other thing is I have no contact with him. And I've tried and tried and we tried and tried and tried um, to stay on the phone thing. And, you know, for the kids' sake and all this, it doesn't work. It one Sometimes um, he will find things to say. It will, it will trigger me. And then I just lose my cool for the whole day, and then I have to, like, get all better. And now I, I learned that with him, um, not con- no contact over the phone, and he knows it. And he, stop- and he actually respects my boundaries. Like, I'm, like, baffled that he's, like, so respectful of my boundaries because I'm teaching him how to treat me. Um, the other thing is the no contact now is he can only reach me through email. And it has to be in regards of our children, or I will not even answer back. And he knows it. And it's a miracle, Chad, that the the relationship that we have now is a, a, a complete 360 of what it was before. And um, so, through this whole process, you've learned that you are worth fighting for. And in the process, and in the process of that, all these dominoes fell after that aligned you, and then affected his behavior, which then came into alignment with what you wanted, uh, and it grew. This your hope grew, and within that hope, you became an inspiration for yourself. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, everyone listening becomes inspired with your story because it is a story of hope of tremendous hope and it got you through and it's just inspirational you made me cry twice i teared up (laughs) while while this was going on it rarely happens i because i hear so many stories it's hard for me sometimes to you know i'm I'm listening from a distance in in some sort of ways but you made it happen twice in this episode and you, you were very, you told your story very well. And for everyone out there listening, your story for anyone who's really down and doesn't think there is a way out, mm-hmm. your story is you are living proof that there is yes. living proof. You've had a lot, everything stacked against you, especially when you throw the addiction part on top of that, of how you're going to, get out of that and you you did it and you made it out and you're still working on yourself because it's a lot of uh you know 
I don't know how many years it was you were living in that way to reprogram yourself in, you know, you're going to have your steps back, obviously, but you, you got there and, and you did it your way. And, you know, it, it's really inspiring. And for everyone, you know, I just really, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming on the show and telling us your story and sharing your story with us. Cause it's a really important story for everyone to hear because there is hope thank you. and you are a beacon of hope. And I just want to thank you once again, Delilah, for being part of our show, being part of this episode. And for everyone listening, I just want to thank you for tuning into this episode. And from Delilah and myself, I wish you all a good night. Mm-hmm.